Hello and welcome to Hell No, a true crime podcast with your host, Lauren Lucio. For this week's episode, I'm actually going to give a warning because it does involve children. It doesn't involve any sexual abuse or anything like that, but there are children involved. So if that makes you uncomfortable, maybe just skip this week. My source information for this week came, largely came from a book called Sleep My Children Forever by John Coston. It is a very good book. I'll link it in my show notes. You can get it on Audible. You can buy a copy of it. You can do what you do with books. You want to listen to it. You want to read it. It's up to you. Some of you may have noticed I did not put out an episode last week because life, baby, just life. So this week I do have an episode and I also had time to research some upcoming episodes Um that they're going to be pretty good. That's what I'm going to say. They're going to be pretty good. So let's just get into this week's episode. Thanksgiving weekend, November 24th, 1988, St. Louis, Missouri, USA. 28-year-old Ellen Boehm calls 911. When paramedics arrive, Ellen isn't the one to answer the door. After several knocks and checking they have the correct address, the door is opened by Ellen's seven-year-old daughter, Stacy. Stacy then shows them her two-year-old brother, David, laying on the living room floor, not breathing. Ellen had run out of the apartment to get help, leaving her dying child and two other children alone in the apartment. When Ellen returned 10 minutes after paramedics arrived, She didn't seem too flustered and just simply said to them, he's been sick. The ambulance rushed David to hospital where he was diagnosed with cardiopulmonary arrest. Doctors and nurses worked fast to try to save his little life. He was put on oxygen machines, but his body temperature was rising, so they tried to cool him down by surrounding his tiny body with ice. The next morning, he was brought into the ICU and being kept alive solely by machines. Ellen's friend Deanne went to the hospital to be with Ellen and her godson, David. Deanne asked Ellen what had happened to David, and Ellen said he just stopped breathing the night before. What Ellen didn't say to anyone was that she had held a pillow over his face until he passed out. She didn't call an ambulance until his lips turned blue. The doctors at this point are running tests to see if his brain was functioning, but unfortunately the test showed no brain activity. Deanne started to notice that Ellen was acting weird, like when she learned that while David was in hospital the entire night before, Ellen didn't stay with him. She went home to sleep. And what also struck her as odd was Ellen hadn't contacted her mother, so David's grandmother, to tell her that anything was happening. The next day, the doctors informed them there is no change regarding David's brain activity. And when Ellen walked over to her brain-dead son, she didn't kiss him. She didn't cry. She didn't fall to her knees, begging God to take her instead. Nope, none of that. She did, however, lift up his eyelid to check his eyes, which exposed fully dilated pupils, meaning it is not a good sign. 
Later that same day, Ellen gave approval to doctors to take David off life support. Deanne was breaking down and crying, but she noticed Ellen wasn't. When Deanne was saying to Ellen about um, how she hopes they never have to go through this again, Ellen just smiled. And this smile chilled Deanne to the bone. It was sinister. That day, November 26, 1988, two-year-old David Boehm was taken off life support and pronounced dead. Doctors classified it as a crib death. Deanne found this hard to believe, but Ellen accepted it without question. Deanne also heard Ellen asking the doctors if she could donate her son's eyes, um, but because of the fever, um, they they couldn't accept them. This also troubled Deanne. She thought this was this was strange as well. Deanne was really freaked out, and the breaking point came when they were told they could say goodbye to David's body. And Ellen sat in a rocking chair, holding David's body, not crying, but instead, in a haunting fake voice, kept saying. David, mommy loves you. This made Deanne feel sick. She told Ellen that she was going home and she left. David's body was then sent away for an autopsy. A few days later, the results were sudden death of undetermined etiology following an apparent viral syndrome. And Ellen started planning the funeral and almost immediately went back to her job, taking no time to grieve. In fact, on the way to the funeral home to plan for her two-year-old son's funeral, she wanted to stop on the way um, and buy tickets to a pro wrestling event she wanted to attend. And she called Deanne to tell her she would get them the tickets. And Deanne was thinking, how could she be worried about wrestling tickets right now? But she didn't say anything. The two were really into wrestling. You keep hearing this a lot in the in the audiobook or if you look up um, like news articles. Um, Ellen was really into pro wrestling and she was really into pro wrestlers. So I'm not sure if she got the tickets, but she really wanted them. The day of the funeral came around and Deanne couldn't bring herself to go, but there was Ellen, almost emotionless, only a few tears when the time was right, when people were looking. As if Ellen's behavior wasn't bizarre enough, she did something unsettling during a manicure a few days after David had died. The woman doing her nails um, said some comforting words to Ellen, like, you know, sorry, you know, sorry to hear about your son, something like that. And Ellen responded, quote, all I have to do is get rid of his toys, unquote. I wonder what her tone was when she said that, because if it was like, all I got to do is get rid of his toys. Or was it, all I have to do is get rid of his toys. Ellen received $1,000 in donations and $5,000 from her job's insurance policy. Her son's $30,000 hospital bill was covered mostly by Mutual by Omaha, leaving Ellen to just pay for $500 for the medical treatment. It was reported Ellen did not pay the funeral home and she had an outstanding balance of $2,300, nor did she purchase a gravestone for David. She had also tried to get more money from another insurance policy, but I don't believe that panned out. Um, from my knowledge, I believe that that had lapsed. She didn't pay it and it wasn't, it wasn't in effect. Ellen was in a lot of financial trouble. For the past two years, being a single mother and receiving no financial help from the kid's father, Paul. 
Paul and Ellen met when she was in high school and he was actually her bus driver and almost twice her age. At the time he met Ellen, he was married and had four children between his ex-wife and his current wife. Two years after Ellen graduated high school, Paul divorced his wife and married Ellen at the age of 20. They soon bought a house and they get pregnant with their firstborn child, Stacy. And she was born September 1981. Four years later, in September 1985, Ellen gives birth to son, Stephen. And then one year after that, she gives birth to David in July 1986. So she got pregnant almost immediately after Stephen was born. During her pregnancy with David is when she met Deanne. Um, They both shared the same passion for pro wrestling events and they like to attend those events with each other. I believe their husbands were friends as well and that's how they met. Around this time is when Ellen is thinking her marriage isn't going to work out because Paul is having an affair with a younger woman. Paul showed up for the birth of David and then left Ellen and never paid any child support. The finances took a terrible nosedive and she was forced out of the home they had bought together. She then moves her and the three kids into an apartment and also takes a night job as well as her full-time job. Um, So during the day, she was a secretary and at night she delivered pizza. So I believe she was doing 40 hours a week as a secretary 20 hours a week um, delivering pizzas and she is getting some much needed help from her mother who is doing a free child minding for her. Ellen's only escape is her pro wrestling events which she loves. She would even write flirtatious letters to pro wrestlers but she never got any responses. So here was Ellen two years after her husband left her after David's funeral, broke, trying to cash in on insurance policies. Nine months after David's death, between August and September 1989, Ellen takes out a combined amount of $100,000 in insurance policies on each of her children. So she has two children now, and each of them have a life insurance policy of $100,000 on them. Through a company called Shelter, she gets a $30,000 policy on each child. Through State Farm, she gets $50,000 policy on each child. Um, And those take effect September 6, 1989. Then through Gerber, another $3,000 on each child. Then through United Omaha, another $12,000 on each child. And she also had her work insurance, which insured $5,000 on each of the children. If both of her children die, she would now receive $200,000 potentially. So September 6, 1989, the insurance insurance policies come into effect. One week later, on September 13th, which is not even a year after David had died, died just note that so september 13th eight-year-old stacy was in the bathtub her three-year-old brother steve he was asleep stacy had just read him a story i believe it was called little popcorn something like there was a child book like that um and ellen is in the kitchen putting away groceries stacy is in the bathtub scrubbing up singing away playing with her barbies and just being a cute little girl 
Her face is covered in soap bubbles and her eyes are closed. Suddenly she feels a splash and she wipes the bubbles off her face. And then before she could figure out what was happening, she feels a powerful force shooting through her entire body, dragging her down. But she can't see anyone around. But what she can see is a hairdryer in the water plugged in with her. By some miraculous miracle, this eight-year-old girl picked up the hairdryer and threw it out of the bathtub and starts screaming. Moments before this event occurred, Ellen had plugged in a 110-volt hairdryer and tossed it into the bathtub where her daughter was bathing, then ran out of the room. It's a good thing Stacy was a badass little girl because she managed to throw that hairdryer out and save her life. Stacy had electricity coursing through her body and was having a difficult time speaking to her mother when Ellen ran in and started asking her questions. So Ellen runs in and she's like, what happened, Stacy? And Stacy's like, um, you know, I have no idea. And Stacy had no idea her mother had just tried to kill her. All the commotion woke up four-year-old Stephen, and when he came to see what was happening, Ellen had asked him, like, you know, what happened, Stephen? And he said he didn't know. He was like, I don't know, Mom. Ellen then ran over to a neighbor's house who is a paramedic, but he wasn't home. The kids and Ellen were screaming so much that a neighbor actually called police. So it must have been some pretty irregular screams. And when the police arrived, Ellen and the kids were outside on their way to their car. She told police that her daughter had been electrocuted. Ellen had told police that her daughter had been electrocuted and the cop just points them to the hospital. On the way to the hospital, Ellen coaches the children what to say. Her story is that three-year-old Stephen wanted to blow dry her Barbie doll's hair and accidentally dropped the hairdryer in the bathtub. Stacy was probably so confused because she knew it was a lie and even told her mom that Steve was that Stephen was sleeping and, and he didn't do it. They get to the hospital and Stacy agrees to the story her mother had rehearsed with her. Ellen tells the doctor she was busy in the kitchen and she was putting away her groceries and she thought that her son was sleeping and had no idea any of this was happening until she heard her daughter's screams. Okay, can I just squeeze this in real quick? So when I was a child and even now as an adult, I have an irrational fear when I'm like washing my hair or my face like that when my eyes are closed and covered in soap that like a ghost is going to just be like showing itself when my you know I, when I'm not looking um and I always like will like quickly scrub the, the soap out of my eyes and like look um and rinse my face really fast expecting to see like like a ghost standing in my bathroom or something so I can't even imagine how Stacy you know, was was living with this fear after that because it it's not an irrational fear. Like it's a fear that had come from a situation that had actually happened to her. That's uh that's that's just a sidetrack thought. But so anyways, the doctor sees Stacy has minimal injuries and she is released from hospital. She didn't re she didn't require an overnight stay or anything like that. And Ellen had even told the doctor, like, you know, maybe I'll just you know, stay home with her tomorrow. Maybe I won't send her to school. And the doctor's like, yeah, okay. I think she had like mild petechial on her tongue. So she had like just a little bit of 
of blood in her mouth. Um, so no one was suspicious of the mother who just, you know, six days ago has a $100,000 act of life insurance policy on each of her children, one of whom who was just electrocuted in her bathtub. And less than a year before that, her brother dies of crib death at the age of two, which quite a few people thought was strange. Well, if that didn't draw suspicion, maybe what happens 12 days later on September 25th would. But first, let's talk about three days leading up to the 25th. September 22nd, Stephen had his fourth birthday, and the next day, Ellen took him to the doctors for routine vaccinations, which he was overdue for, and even the doctor thought it was strange, as usually mothers who lose a child become hypervigilant about these types of things with their other children. So, but you know, he was like, okay. And um, yeah, he gets his vaccines. I, I, f- I forget exactly what they were. And then Ellen tells people that it was the vaccines that made her son ill later on that day as he became exhausted and was throwing up. The day after this, Ellen called into her job to let them know she wouldn't be in because Steve is sick and she was taking him to the emergency room. But Ellen did not do what she said she was going to, what she told coworkers she was going to do. She didn't take Stephen to the emergency room. Instead, she took her supposedly sick son to Taco Bell and then to a cemetery to visit David's grave. At 11.30 a.m., Ellen called back to work and told them that David was released from hospital and they couldn't find anything wrong with him. At home, um, Stephen was enjoying Sesame Street on TV, Um, as many four-year-olds do. Ellen grabs a pillow and puts it over little Stephen's face until he stops moving. She had suffocated him in the same way she suffocated David only 10 months earlier. She waits a couple of minutes to make sure this time and then puts on a distressed mother act. The time now is 1 p.m. and she runs to her neighbors and screams. Her son isn't breathing and the neighbor calls 911 as Ellen didn't have a phone because she was having some pretty rough financial times. At 1.19 p.m., the ambulance was rushing Stephen to hospital. Ellen told paramedics she would meet them, which was odd for them because usually a mother would want to stay with their, you know, dying or sick child. 1.24 p.m., the ambulance arrived at the hospital. Just after 2, Ellen arrives, but her focus isn't on her child. Instead, she's calling around to like three or four different friends. One of those friends being Deanne, but Deanne wasn't there. So Ellen left a message with Deanne's secretary and that message was, the same thing that happened to David is happening to Stephen. Deanne's secretary asked when it happened and Ellen tells her it happened in the middle of the night, but Ellen had told paramedics and doctors it happened around noon. Then her friends arrive. She told them it happened in the morning when she was getting ready for work. 3.45 p.m. that day, Stephen was declared dead. Friends started to discover the different stories that Ellen had told different people. Deanne asked Ellen 
you know, why did you tell my secretary Stephen stopped breathing in the middle of the night, but now you're telling me he stopped breathing in the afternoon, but Ellen denied it. She was like, I didn't say that to your secretary. And Dan was like, okay. So she goes to her secretary and she was like, what exactly did she tell you? And the secretary was like, no, no, for sure. I relayed this message correctly. She told me that Stephen stopped breathing in the middle of the night. So Deanne, she was suspicious, but she just thought, you know, maybe she's in in shock. The more Deanne thought about it, though, the more she realized she needed to talk to police. So she called and spoke to Sergeant Duffy. Deanne asked him if, you know, are two children's deaths 10 months apart from each other with the same mother something that, you know, maybe the police would look into? And he was like, are you talking about someone specific? Like, do you have something in mind? And she was like, yes. And they indeed started looking into it because it was suspicious. It was suspicious. Um, Stephen's autopsy wasn't finalized yet and it wouldn't be for quite a while. They collected all the samples from him and um, it turned out it was the same coroner that conducted David's autopsy was now less than a year later conducting his brother Stephen's autopsy. Sergeant Duffy went to speak with this coroner, Dr. Graham, and now Dr. Graham was, he was also suspicious. He then started to rule out possibilities. So he wanted to rule out all possibilities that, you know, aren't murder, basically. And he conducted testing, testing that would last for like up to a year. Like he was ruling everything out, but we'll come back to that later. His theory was mechanical asphyxiation, but he had to prove it. Dr. Graham called Sergeant Joe Burgoon in the police homicide unit. This man had seen it all. He was a truly seasoned detective and if anyone could solve this case it was him. Joe heard some details and hurried over to look at Stephen's body and um, speak in greater detail with Dr. Graham. Joe seen and heard all he needed and was going to look into this, you know, ruthlessly. Around this time, a unknown person called the child abuse hotline and told them about Stacy's electrical shock and the two boys' deaths, which nobody's really sure who that was because Dan didn't know about Stacy's electrocution. Like there was a lot of people who didn't know about that. So, you know, maybe it was a nurse at the hospital or a doctor it's an unidentified person it's a mystery we never know who it was and uh, the woman who answered the hotline miss turner she was like okay yeah this is definitely something to look into so she went to stacy's school to interview stacy when ellen wasn't there nothing suspicious came to light and and stacy stuck with the story that stephen had threw the hairdryer in the bathtub Ellen was also interviewed and gave very detailed answers, which like detailed to the point it was like suspicious. The time came to plan and hold Stephen's funeral and Ellen's friends couldn't understand why she wasn't using the same funeral services because they didn't know, they didn't know that she had never paid for David's funeral 10 months earlier and she still owed them like two thousand three hundred dollars or something for the burial site and 
well, she never purchased a, a, a gravestone. It was still like a plastic marker. Um, and people were getting suspicious. And one woman, I, I can't remember the exact situation, but it was when they, it was, I think it was at her work and they were going around collecting money and um, something happened. And Ellen like was like boasting, like, I'm going to go with this other, other funeral home because they do it cheaper or something. And then she left the room and her one coworker was like, I'm not raising a single dollar for that fucking bitch. It was like something like that. Like, <laughs> like it got, like people were like, what's going on with this woman? Why, you know, why is she like happily walking around telling people she can get discounts at other funeral homes? And I don't know, it got messy. People were getting suspicious and Ellen was being weird because Ellen, again, she wasn't the grieving mother everyone expected to see at Stephen's funeral. But, you know, everyone reacts differently to grief and trauma and stuff like that. So, you know, some people were like, maybe this is just her way. And then some people were like, oh, this feels wrong. So suspicion was growing stronger. Stephen was buried beside his little brother David in the cemetery in the area dedicated to children, which just breaks my heart that an area like that even exists. Ellen was now expected to receive $100,000 in life insurance money, but I believe one policy was void as the proper paperwork was never filed. It could have been the Gerber one um, for $3,000, I think, Um, but the bigger payouts, uh, they were still, you know, she was still set to get those. Shelter, her one insurance provider, they were like, okay, this is kind of strange. Like, you know, you've had two two sons die in less than a year and you've just put a big insurance policy on one. Um, we're going to need that death certificate before we can, you know, move on with uh, getting you your payment. So, of course, Ellen was eager to get that death certificate. But the coroner, he wouldn't sign off on it until he could rule out foul play. Ellen decided to buy herself a brand new car and even told the car salesman the money was from a life insurance payout from her son's death. The car salesman, he never heard this before. You know, he sold a ton of cars. He never had anybody come in saying, I'm using money from my you know, child's life insurance um, policy because he died. So he was like, okay. And um, she bought the floor model and I believe she just drove it home that day. Shortly after her big purchase of the car, but not related to it at all, Sergeant Joe Burgoon stops by to see Ellen to ask her some questions. Ellen retells her story and, uh, you know, she went with the noon story. She's saying that Stephen stopped breathing at noon. I'm still not sure why she lied to other people about the time. I don't know why she had three stories, but she told Burgoon Stephen's breathing stopped uh, at noon, around 12. He also questioned her about the life insurance and she listed four policies that she has. I'm sure this looked highly suspicious to a seasoned homicide detective like Joe Burgoon. The lack of physical evidence was hindering to the investigation. So Detective Burgoon was busy interviewing neighbors and and, uh, the building manager, whoever he could talk to that he thought might have information. 
It was the building manager that told Detective Burgoon about the bathtub electrocution incident Stacy had. And she also told him about the eerie feeling she had the afternoon that Stephen stopped breathing and the ambulance took him away the day that he died. She had seen them in the hallway and she was like talking to them and she just said she was getting weird vibes. And Ellen was like, yeah, I'm home from work today because he's sick. And she was like, okay, um, okay, bye. She also told the detective that she found Ellen's lack of grief after Stephen's death to be like weird. Detective Joe Burgoon called the life insurance companies and um, he calculated a payout of about $96,000. She wasn't getting that $3,000 policy from Gerber. I'm not sure what happened. I think that one didn't come into effect until October, Uh, but Stephen died in September, so it wasn't in effect at that time. Um, Ellen was going to, so Ellen was going to receive $96,000 in life insurance money, which to any detective screams motive. Now a task force was formed to the case. He also called Deanne. And she told the detective that Ellen had called her a few weeks ago to tell her that the boys, Stephen and David, had both died of a, like a improper heart rhythm. But just that day, Ellen had called her, but this time told her that she didn't know what had killed them. Deanne didn't ask her any questions about the conflicting information she was giving her. So now it's January and detectives now wanted to bring Ellen and her daughter Stacy in for questioning as they were growing concerned for Stacy's well-being. They again asked Ellen about the insurance policies. Ellen went over her insurance policies um, that she had, all four of them. And when they asked her, like, you know, why do you have a 50, the largest one was $50,000. And they were like, why do you have, why do you have that big of a policy? And she said that the insurance agent talked her into upping it from $30,000 to $50,000. So detectives later talked to that agent and discovered Ellen was lying. And it was it was at her request that it be upped from $30,000 to $50,000. They had also asked her about the bathtub incident with Stacy and the hairdryer. And Ellen told them, you know, Stephen had done it. But what Ellen didn't know was that in another room, Stacy was telling them the truth. Stacy was telling detectives that she had read Stephen the story that night, and once he fell asleep, she took her bath, and when her eyes were closed, she heard a noise, rinsed the bubbles from her face, and saw her mother's hair dryer in the bathtub and threw it out of the water. Um, and she explains it like she was, you know, had these things crawling all over her body, which would have been the electricity shooting through her little tiny body, which is just so sad. What kind of mother just plugs in a hairdryer, walks over to a bathtub where their little daughter is just singing away, being a good child, chucks it in and then runs away? How can anybody do that? I just do not know. She also told detectives that her mother told her when they were on their way to the hospital that she had talked to Stephen and Stephen told her that he did throw the dryer in the bathtub, but Stacy knew he was asleep. 
The next day, Ellen is brought back in for a polygraph test, which comes out inconclusive. After the polygraph, they interview Ellen again, and they catch her out in a few lies. Nothing to pin her with murder, but enough to know they can't trust her. Investigators were looking at the patterns and fundamentals of serial killers, and they brought in agents to do some, like, profiling and just apply some, like, behavioral science to this whole case. And an investigator named Agent Wright observed that in Ellen's case, she needed money. She had filed for bankruptcy when her husband left her, and she set herself up to receive $100,000 in the event of her child's death. But also, he observed through the detective's reports, um, Ellen had been lying about relationships she was having with men. She had told friends she was dating a certain person or persons. This happened on more than one occasion but when detectives questioned those men it was clearly untrue um those men you know even said that well one of them specifically I I know of said that Ellen would basically like aggressively and you know persistently ask him out and he would keep refusing her and and that same guy said after he would refuse her he kept getting these weird phone calls from an alias that called herself little bunny or snow bunny i can't remember exactly what it was it was something to do with the name bunny i can't remember but he was he was he was sure it was ellen or she had something to do with it he was like it was ellen or it was her friends but you know it was definitely her because they had been saying something about Ellen or they were like insinuating something about Ellen agent Wright believes this urge for you know men's attention could be another reason why she would want to gain a lot of money and he even says and um I got this from the book the book that I cited at the beginning of this podcast he says quote it was not unusual for someone like Alan who is overweight and unattractive to dream of a better life unquote he then goes into talk about how um clearly Ellen had to find a way to get that life and perhaps she saw you know, maybe money could be in a way, you know, make her more attractive. Um, That's like roughly summarized. Um, But he believed she wanted to be uh, rich and childless, basically, in order to pursue her dreams with these men. Detectives start planning Ellen's arrest, including the best time to do it. And they think of, you know, you know, Friday after she finishes work, that would be best for some kind of psychological reasons. That's when they think would be the best time to arrest her, bring her in and question her and try to get her to confess. But months pass and the investigation is suspended. This made Ellen cocky because she was still a free woman. Shelter insurance wouldn't pay the $30,000 on Stephen's life insurance policy until the death certificate had been signed. But the coroner, Dr. Graham, he wouldn't sign it until he had ruled out foul play and he was, you know, could could sign whatever he needed to put on that death certificate with a, a clear conscience. Ellen had been calling shelter insurance asking, you know, where her payout is. She had also been calling a few people, including Deanne. And one day, out of nowhere, called and mentioned to Deanne that she learned from a book in the library that there are 101 ways to kill a child without, like, leaving a trace or, like, without detection. 
And Deanne was like, what the fuck? And got off the phone with Ellen, but then got right back on the phone with Detective Burgoon to tell him about that, um, what Ellen had just told her. And he was like, oh my God. Yep, okay, let's note this. So, you know, duly noted. A year and a half later, the coroner ruled out every possibility of a natural death on Stephen. And they could now move forward with the investigation. The cause of death was listed as mechanical asphyxiation, which means Stephen was smothered. September 12th, 1991, 31-year-old Ellen Boehm was charged with first-degree murder uh, for both of her sons. So two counts of first-degree murder, actually, and one count of first-degree assault for Stacy's hair dryer electrocution incident. Friday the 13th, September 1991, Ellen is arrested by Detective Burgoon and Detective Bender at 5.15 p.m. as she finishes work. She gets in her car. She's driving home. You know, she's thinking, yes, yeah, it's the weekend. I'm going to go home and watch some pro wrestling, whatever she did on her weekends. Basically, everything I read, all she, her whole life was wrestling. So I'm just going to go out on a limb and say that's how she was going to spend her Friday night. But that got ruined because they pulled her over. They see her car. They go after her. They pull her over. Ellen is like, oh, hey. Or actually, I think she said, hi. And then, quote, quoting this from the book I cited, I knew you were going to get me, unquote. That's what she said to them. Police back at headquarters, they had set up an intimidating scene to show Ellen. They had been gunning for her hard. Back at police headquarters, um, police had been busy setting up an intimidating interrogation area. So the scene they set up, they did this because they wanted her to know that they were gunning for her hard. It was like a psychological technique. And this, I found this very cool. I thought this was a very cool bit of this case how they did this i'd imagine this was because they had heaps and heaps of circumstantial evidence but they didn't have any concrete forensic findings or a a smoking gun so to speak so a confession would have been the golden ticket for their case so let me tell you how they set up this interrogation room they put a sign on the door that read boehm task force to display they had assembled a task force just for her but what i really thought was creative of them is that the detective put lots of they went around the station and they collected everybody's used coffee cups and they put them all over these tables so they brought in tables they brought in filing cabinets they brought in like stuff to really fill the room they collected all these old coffee cups and they put them all over the tables and then they brought in ashtrays and they went to the garbage and they pulled out all these cigarette butts from from the garbages and they put them all in the ashtray to make the ashtrays look like they were overflowing so it looked like a team of people had been there a long time investigating the case they 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 put up charts that i think it was like eight or 14 i don't know it was like all 
all, all these like charts that they made and all over these charts were um, Ellen's bank records, her her insurance records and, and just like a bunch of other evidence. They put them all over these charts and they put them all over the room to basically say like, we've got a lot of information here, lady. So you, you don't have any hope. You might as well confess is what they were trying to say with the scene they set, which I think is just amazing. They even had a detective writing a fake report. So she walks in and there's like a detective sitting there and he's like writing away and like looking very serious. That wasn't real either. They set that up. I, it's amazing. So then they begin the interrogation. Ellen stuck to her stories, but Sergeant Burgoon and Bender soon coaxed out the truth and she told them she smothered Stephen with a cushion. Once they had that confession, they questioned her about David, and she then confessed to smothering him the same way. They then asked her about Stacy, but she wouldn't change the story and admit to throwing the hairdryer in the tub. Hours and hours pass, so it's like 10.26 p.m. at this time. Ellen is now making a video confession. The video starts out with detectives giving their names, giving her name, um, reading the constitutional rights, um, you know, making sure she understand, making sure she understood and agreed the rights and, you know, verbally communicating that. Eventually they get into it and she confesses to both David and Stephen's death on video, but still claims Stephen threw the hairdryer in the tub. After the video confession is done, Ellen calls her mother and confesses to the murders. Detective Burgoon called Deanne to tell her the news. Even though Deanne had had her suspicions, she was still shocked. The police um, go and they process Ellen's apartment for evidence. And a few weeks later, they're done with it. So friends are sent in to clear it out. Um, which actually, I also found out that one woman was not excited to volunteer to do this because she had been in Ellen's apartment before and she said that her living room smelled like urine and she had moldy pizza sitting around. And um, if you listen to the hoarding episode, you could probably guess that um, I'm not into messy houses. <laughs> I like things clean. Let's just say that. So this information to me, I was like, oh, <clears throat> it was also disturbing. So her friends are over there clearing out the apartment and they see this like bottle of mouthwash in the bathroom in like this like weird tiny cupboard. And they're like, what is that? So they pick it up and they're looking at it and they're like, this isn't, this isn't mouthwash. Like, what is this? It's like this like thicker, you know, kind of fluorescent, you know, bluey greeny color. They open it. I'm, I'm assuming they open it and smell it. I'm not sure exactly how, but they figure out it's antifreeze. If you guys watch Forensic Files or if you watch anything like that, you will know that there is a ingredient in antifreeze called ethylene glycol and it will kill you if you drink it so they were like okay that's strange but check this out so earlier that year there had been a case of a mother who allegedly poisoned her five-month-old son with antifreeze this woman eventually she actually she was convicted and she did go to jail but then she appealed it and then she was actually found innocent 
and she was like she she actually didn't do this it was some sort of like chemical process that had happened that made it look like um her five-month-old son had had antifreeze but it, it turned out it wasn't I don't know the exact details but she was actually innocent but it was all over the papers like that it was a pretty big case so like Ellen would have like seen this and maybe her friends are thinking wow like you know did Ellen get some ideas from that case and was she gonna give this mouthwash to Stacy to her daughter Police soon get a call from one of Ellen's neighbors that uh, he was there the night that Stacy was electrocuted. In fact, it was it was that guy that had called the police that night because of the screaming. So when he called police, he told them that he was there the night that the electrocution happened and he was the one that called police because of the yelling. And he wanted to tell them what he had heard from the hallway that night he tells police that he heard stacy yelling quote he was not in the bathroom unquote now police have another witness for stacy's assault police had a lot of witnesses for the trial including neighbors and friends of ellen's the doctors paramedics the coroner co-workers even the car salesman the nail technician they had 32 witnesses on their long list the trial was set for may 10th but after hearing um if she so they told ellen they're like hey if you plead guilty you could not only save yourself and everyone along trial but also you could be spared the death penalty in exchange for life sentences for the first degree murder charges 32-year-old Ellen Boehm pleads guilty to a judge in 1993, four years after Stephen's death and five years after David's death. She is convicted and sentenced for one count of first-degree murder and one count of second-degree murder, receiving two life sentences back-to-back with no possibility of parole. Ellen's daughter Stacy was put into state care as Ellen's mother was too unwell physically to care for her. Ellen tried to appeal, but it was rejected. January 2nd, 1994, three years since they last spoke, Ellen calls Deanne from prison. And after a bit of small talk, Ellen asked Deanne if she had ever read the um, police reports. Did you ever read those? And Deanne told her, Ooh, no, uh, no, man, I never read those. And Ellen tells her she knows. She says, I know you were talking to police. Whew, I couldn't just imagine. They talked for a bit longer and Ellen still claimed her innocence. She said she was coerced into her confessions. Deanne, well, Deanne secretly wished someone would put a pillow over Ellen's face every morning for the rest of her life so Ellen could feel the fear that those little boys felt when she had done it to them. So, wow, just a crazy, crazy case. Man, there are some really evil, evil people in this world as we just saw in the Alum Boehm case here. Um, The acts of you know evilness that she demonstrated to go that far and do such horrific things to her own children for money it's 
terrifying. So again, I would like to cite the major source of um, my information for this uh, week's podcast. It is the book by John Costin called Sleep My Children Forever, which I will link that in my show notes. Uh, That concludes this week's episode of Hell No, a true crime podcast. And to Ellen Boehm, I say hell no. Thanks for listening. See you next week.